turn your Bibles to the 145th Psalm. Psalm 145 is found on page 979 in the Bible provided for you in the pew. And John mentioned the joint Sunday school presentation is on our YouTube site and it'll be on the website. You can also pick up a Vision and Values brochure if you were not here and uh, would be helpful for you as uh, you exit there at all the doors. Psalm 145, a psalm of praise of David. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I'll praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cries and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Let's pray together. And O great one, we join David and say, great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. Jesus Christ, you reveal the great one so that we might know not only God's greatness, but his graciousness. Holy Spirit, you've opened our eyes. Would you open our eyes that we would see the greatness of this gracious God and that we would live as your people a people of praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Cloud of Witnesses was written in 2004 by David C. Calhoun, a professor at Covenant Seminary, history professor, and it chronicles the life of First Presbyterian Church over 200 years, the story of God's faithfulness. He entitled the book Cloud of Witnesses, and in the introduction, he refers to 1666 in the Pentland Hills of Scotland. There, Presbyterian 
covenanters were martyred. They were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a marker there at the cemetery. And the marker reads with these words, A cloud of witnesses lies here who for Christ's interest did appear. It's a humble reminder that the people of God, we're a cloud of witnesses and we've appeared on this earth because of Christ's interest. And in this broken world, we are to live for Christ's interest and we're to spread the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. He lives and he's coming again. Living for Christ's interest in a broken world. How do we live for Christ's interest? Well, Christ is not only the most beautiful life, it's also the most beneficial life. And Western and modern people, particularly in the next generation, seem to be less interested in the upward look into the Godward look. Most who want healing and hope or on the inward look to try to find something in me that I can fix or a sadness that can become happy or to gain something that I don't have. All too often, our path is a pragmatic path to beauty and to benefit. And yet, what happens when life crashes? What happens when the crisis hits? What happens when you have a near-death experience? What happens when you lose a loved one? Most people began to deal with not only deep regrets, but questioning about deep desires, longing for meaning, longing for answers, longing for healing. It's built into our nature. God has made us to long for the eternal, that which only he can bring. Years ago, Saving Private Ryan was a movie that won 11 Academy Awards. Steven Spielberg produced the movie. And Tom Hanks plays the story of not one of the Nyland brothers. And it's based on a true story. Not that everything in the movie is true, but it begins with Private Ryan's family taking him back to Normandy. And they walk up this long hill and he begins to be shaky when he sees all of those crosses at the cemetery, all of his brothers who have died so that others, including Ryan, might be saved. The story is that a group of eight, a battalion was sent out to bring back Private Ryan safely. When he gets close to reading those names, he falls on the ground in tears. The movie is his remembrance of those days of Normandy when they climbed the hill under all that kind of devastation and opposition. But the movie closes. He's in tears, clinging to his wife, and he turns to her and he says, tell me that I was a good man. Tell me that my life made a difference. Tell me that I helped somebody. 
It's that longing in our hearts for meaning. It's a longing to say, I did not waste my life. I did not squander this opportunity. National Public Radio recently aired a broadcast entitled Dying Well. Some New York Times journalists had analyzed over 2,000 of the obituaries in the New York Times over the last 20 months. They found that the word used most in those obituaries was the word helped. Everyone wants to be remembered that they help someone. Everyone wants to think of their loved one now gone as someone who made a difference. Well, this pandemic has asked all of us to ask some deep questions. I think for the first time many people have asked the question, am I going to die? Others have asked, are my loved ones going to die? And I'm praying that asking those deeper questions would bring people to the end of themselves, that they might see that they've been placed here for a greater purpose. Their lives are to count for something bigger. They've been created to matter. They are here to make a difference. Well, David finds himself at the end of his life. Psalm 145 was written, David's last psalm. And it wasn't as if everything in David's life at the end had gone well. He had sinned against God, Bathsheba, Uriah. He'd been told by the prophet Nathan that the sword would not leave his home. Absalom, his son, had rebelled against him and then had been killed in battle. And yet, David stands in preparation, leaving this world. He's not sad. He's not sulking. He's not sour. David is singing. David says, I plan to leave this world singing. What kind of grace, what kind of life would give you at the end of your life a song, a praise? Well, most Americans have had two expectations from their health care providers. They demand that Healthcare workers take away our pain and that those healthcare workers keep us alive. But even science has shown that man and humanism cannot provide our hearts with what we long for. What does David know? What should we know? David will teach us here that God is a God who has made us to praise him. And he'll teach us that we praise him because of his greatness and his gracious acts on our behalf. And that praise should be intimate and intense so that we will endure. And when we stand at that moment, all that will be left will be praise. Now, David's life could be described as an adventure or a quest or a mission but this last psalm, David describes his life as a testimony, a testimony of God's faithfulness, 
a testimony of how God's people have commended to him the greatness of God and the graciousness of God acting on the people of God. And now, at the end of his life, he commends the greatness and graciousness of God. The psalm is 21 verses. And if we were reading it in the Hebrew, you'd note that every verse begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's as if David is saying from beginning to end, from A to Z, my whole life has been a testimony to God's gracious faithfulness. And he declares that God is the most beautiful. And he declares that God is the most beneficial. First, that the greatness of God's character and his beauty. David uses three words to describe God's greatness, words that God gave his people in terms of his name. He says, Elohim, God is personal, God is present, and God is faithful. Over 3,000 times in the Old Testament, God's self-revelation of himself is Elohim. And then here, Melech, or king, that he rules and reigns in power. And his power is over all kingdoms and all enemies. And then David says, great is the Lord. Great is Yahweh, 6,800 times. God's self-revelation to his people is that I'm Yahweh, the self-existent one. The first time God revealed that name was to Moses at the burning bush. And Moses said, I need to know your name if I'm going to represent you to Pharaoh and the people. And he said, my name is Yahweh. I am that I am, the self-existent one. Whatever you need, Moses, I am that. If you need courage, I am that. If you need strength, I am the self-existent one. But not only does David praise God with the names of God, look at the descriptions of God-like characteristics he describes the Lord. Great is the Lord, God of glorious splendor, majestic God, unsearchable greatness, abundant goodness. His greatness is unmatched. His greatness is unrivaled. His greatness is unlimited. It is true beauty. And as David gazes on God's glory, he cannot not praise him. John Calvin, speaking of this beauty, said, what's so amazing as you read these verses? This is a God who doesn't find beauty in himself only, but beauty in blessing those that are his. He uses his power not to dominate his followers, but to deliver his followers. So God is a God of greatness, but he's also a God of gracious deliverance. Look in verse 4. This is actually the theme verse for our new vision and values statement. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. God, in his greatness, comes down and delivers. He works on behalf of his, his people. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That was first quoted of God in Exodus 34, 6 on Mount Sinai when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. He says the central core and character of this God who delivers. See it in the text? It's grace. Grace is the central core and characteristic of the people of God. 
Now, over 20 times that verse is repeated in the Old Testament, in Jonah, in Jeremiah, in Nehemiah, in the Psalms, and Joel. And we'll study more specifically that verse next week. But what David is referring to is that the Exodus experience explains to us the problem of sin and the picture of salvation. The Exodus experience is the meta-narrative for us to explain and understand the problem of sin. The problem of sin is bondage. And the deliverance of salvation is liberation. And we're told in Exodus 3 that God told Moses, I have seen the afflictions of my people. I've heard their cries and I've come down to deliver them. And David is reminding these people that God has faithfully delivered those that came before him and that God will deliver him and the generations to come. And what is his guarantee? Because the central core of God's character is grace. J.I. Packer in Knowing God says it this way, speaking of this passage, God gives generously because it's the central core of who he is. God longs for the joy and the happiness of those people in whom he's placed his affection. Does that resonate with your heart? That the God of grace has come down to ensure that your heart is full of joy. That you know that you are his affection and his treasure. Grace is the most important word in the Bible. You come to know God by grace. You grow in grace. You're sustained by grace. We're told that we serve in the gifts of grace that God gives us. And grace turns our hearts or melts our hearts from praise of self to praise of God. His interests become our greatest interest. Packer says it this way, God moved heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. That's the testimony of God's grace. And David says, Abraham has testified and he's commended that God is faithful and he can be trustworthy. Jacob has testified and he's commended that even in his scheming and his selfishness, God is faithful. And Joseph has testified, even when evil deeds came and sought to destroy him and God's people, God is faithful and he testifies. Moses has testified. Joshua has testified. Esther has testified. Rahab has testified. Nathan has testified. And now David testifies. This great God is gracious and he acts on behalf of his people. What's that to do to the heart of a follower? David says that it will draw our hearts into intimate praise, but that praise will be intense. Look what he says there. I will exalt you, my God and King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you. I will praise your name forever and ever. This God is near. This God is knowable. This God is not out of reach. And this God and his grace never ends. But look at the passion, the intensity of this praise. David uses words like exalt, extol, bless, commend, declare, meditate, speak, 
It's not surprising that verse says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Don't bring apathetic, half-hearted praise to a God that is great and gracious and works on account of his people. He's explaining what happens when grace touches a heart. It's a way you can know if you are a believer is the grace of God will fill your heart with praise. Think about how the New Testament describes people who've been touched by grace. First Thessalonians 5 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. And be anxious for nothing, but in prayer, by supplication, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God that will guard your hearts and mind will guard you in Christ Jesus. You see, praise is this path to eradicating peace, to discovering God's will, and to living for Christ's interest. So here's a few reflections about praise. As you do these reflections, think about your own praise. Praise is not a duty to perform or an obligation to be imposed. It's the privileged embrace of the joy of grace. Not guilt, but grace is our motivation. When we wonder at this gift, our hearts are filled with praise of his goodness. Extravagant praise is proper, but it requires contemplation. Did you know that David says, I meditate. I separate myself from all the toxic destructive noise in the culture, in my head, on social media. I fill my heart and my head with the praise of God and his greatness, and my heart fills up with grace and praise. Praise is to be the Christian's testimony, and praise delivers us from our idols. It liberates our hearts from the bondage that fear, that pride, that despair, and that selfishness robs us. About a year after I became the pastor here, an elder stopped me and he said, I'm concerned about you. And I said, well, tell me about that. He said, do you believe that God has called you to lead and to lead this church? And I said, yes. He said, you believe the session confront? Yes. You believe the congregation confront? Yes. You just seem so pensive. You seem... Um, not as fluid as I recall. You seem uptight, maybe like you're not yourself. And the more he talked to me, the more I realized I'm not living in grace. I'm worried about what people think. I'm performing what I think others might want me to be. I, my focus is not on God's praise. It's making sure that everybody's happy or that they think that I'm the right person. He said, try this on Saturday night. Tell yourself not, I've got to tomorrow. Tell yourself, I get to tomorrow. That's grace. Tell yourself not, I have to tomorrow. Tell yourself, I want to tomorrow. It's been an amazing transformation when I begin to feel myself and my heart pull back. I'm growing less defensive to criticism and to feedback, not totally uh, out of defensiveness, but less defensive than uh, my past. God's liberating me to praise him, to be less defensive, to be less dismissive, 
or touchy. That's an indication that idols are controlling our heart when control or approval or achievement or comfort are more important to us than praise of God, then we need to repent of that. One other thing I would mention about praise, not everything in your life is praiseworthy. At the end of David's life, there was a lot of brokenness and sin. He'd been sinned against and he'd sinned against others. But yet, even at the end of his life, everything, even the worst things, God was using for good and he could praise him. I didn't say that everything in your life is good, but you can still praise him. As Joseph said, when you meant evil against me, God meant it for good. The betrayal of his brothers, the leaving him for dead in the pit, the lies of Potiphar's wife, the uh, being sentenced to prison unfairly. He said, you meant evil against me, and God meant it for good. Romans 8 says, God causes all things to work together for good, not that all things are good. And I know that on any given Sunday, there are people here with the deepest and darkest valleys, people who are afflicted with abuse or adultery or guilt about alcoholism, anorexia, bereavement, bankruptcy, divorce, malignancy, delinquency, mental illness, and you think you don't even deserve to praise him. But you need to repent of your self-centered guilt and shame because Jesus has touched your heart if you belong to him. And he says that you can praise. I also know that on any given Sunday, there's those that are there that are happy and thankful that things are working out for them. And they need to be careful that pride would not rob them from praise. I think of Psalm 23, and it pictures the Psalm of David, how every experience in life, we can praise God. Green pastures, quiet waters, rest for the soul, the valley of the shadow of death, praise him anyway. Facing our enemies, praise him anyway. Why? This is the end of the story. He knows the end of the story. Believer, we know that praise can endure. What's the end of the story? Surely goodness and mercy will follow each of us all the days of our lives, not because of our faithfulness, but we will dwell in the house of the Lord because of his faithfulness to us. David sees in this psalm an enduring kingdom, and it's not his kingdom. He says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He sees the Messiah. He sees that one day there will be one sent from heaven who will declare like God declared to Moses, I have seen their afflictions, I've heard their cries, and I've come down to, to, live, to deliver them. Paul says that Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to hold on to. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He was made in likeness and human flesh. He came down to deliver us, to live the life we could not live, to die the death that we deserve. And in his resurrection, ascension, and his guarantee, he's coming again to take us home and to make this world new. We know praise will endure. And that's how you grow in grace, believer. 
you believe that Jesus is making your heart new by grace. Michelangelo, a famous sculptor, was once asked, how long does it take in chipping away that granite before you can see the image in the sculptor? He said, the, sculptor's all, the sculpture is already complete within the marble block. Before I even start my work, it's already there. I just try to chisel away the superfluous material. And that's what God's grace is doing in the life of a believer. So that in the end, the only thing that endures in your life will be praise. Brothers and sisters, your hurts are not eternal. Your failures and your regrets will not endure. Your anger and your bitterness will never define you. Grace is stripping away all your lesser interest, and it's leaving Christ's interest. Praise will endure. Our vision as a church that your elders put before you in the Sunday school hour, we've been praying over this for over a year and a half, that we would be people of praise, captivated by Christ's interest, and our mission that we would commend this great and gracious God to all people and all generations. I'm humble when I think about 1804. 13 charter members signed a charter, 10 women and three men, three single women, and they signed the charter that formed First Presbyterian Church. In 1809, that membership commissioned Robert Mills, just 47 members, to build this thousand-seat sanctuary. Sometimes I sit on those front steps and I pray. And I say, give us a vision that'll last 200 years or until you come back. Think of these people and their gift to each of us. What did they see? What did they know? They saw the greatness of our God and his gracious character. And one generation commended his greatness to the next generation. When I think about being here for over 30 years, I think about Jack O'Tyson and Lily. Sat there for years feeding my children candy so they would be quiet during the pastoral prayer. I think of Miss Kathy Jones. She's still teaching our children over 40 years, commending God's grace. Barry Whitney, Hunter Baggs, Finn and Jan Hitchcock, Ken and Judy Lankless. Ann Smith would say to me, I pray for you every day, Mike. Alice Inman used to stop me and she said, I hear you're an evangelist. I pray for converts. We want converts in this church. I said, keep praying, Miss Alice, keep praying. You know, recently I read the preface to this 100-year commemoration to our church, and I had read it before, and it stunned me when I read back their opening words in this centennial celebration. Let me just read you a few words. The promise of our Lord for his church is that he will always be with his disciples, but the purpose of this record is to tell of the things which we have heard and which our fathers have told us. In this effort to prepare this memorial, we fail 
if we do not stimulate the future life and work of the church, this mission will be a failure and we will have failed in our activities to glorify God. They had us on our hearts. They thought about the bigness of God's call and they were commending to us, trust him, walk by faith, believe him, not just for First Presbyterian Church and not just for all of Augusta, but all peoples and all generations. At this time in our history, God is allowing us influence, not just throughout the CSRA, throughout the world in our missions efforts. And we are called as people of praise to pass the faith to the next generation. I want to speak to those that are over 50 years of age or grandparents. Uh, I was struck by all that happened to Simone Biles during the Olympics. Simone Biles, probably the most accomplished gymnast in the history of the sport, heading into the Olympics and expected to win every gold medal. She began to crash. She said she could not compete. And I'd watched a documentary of her life when she was a small child. Her mother was a drug addict and could not take care of her. Her grandparents, who already had two other children that they were caring for, drove down to Texas and took Simone and her younger sister. And her grandparents cared for her and gave her a nurturing home. But something she said in an interview about why she couldn't compete struck me. She said, my grandparents and my sister have never not been there. I've never felt so isolated in my life, performing in an empty stadium. That isolation had caused her, the greatest gymnast in the world, to not be able to perform. Grandparents and parents, I want you to know you know what this is like. Your life and your job is not for yourself. It's not that you might have the time that you want. It's that you bless this next generation. When I go to see Lucy Claire, my oldest daughter, we don't sing my songs. We don't listen to the, or watch the movies I enjoy. We're in that dollhouse with Anna and Elsa, and we are singing Rapunzel. You know how to do this, grandparents and parents. We pass the faith. It's not about the music we want. It's not about what we think is important. It's about blessing the next generation. You know, this next generation is less churched than any generation in a long time. We're going to need evangelistic efforts. It's less culturally narrow. It's the most diverse generation. To think for the future, we have to proclaim we're going to pass the faith to the next generation. You know, the gospel thread throughout the Old Testament, it's a thread that is weaved through the whole gospel story with God's people. And when this thread is lost, gospel influence is lost. It came as a prophecy to Isaac and Rebekah. When Jacob and Esau were in the womb, the prophecy was the older will serve the younger. And Jacob thought that he had to scheme and steal, but he uh, passed that on 
to Joseph, not in a way that was dignifying. His brothers hated the youngest. David himself was the youngest. And the older, our Lord Jesus Christ, left heaven. And he came down not to be served, but to serve. We're called to gospel influence. We're called to pass the faith to the next generation. This week, Sandra and I went to eat dinner with a young family in this church, four small children, a foster child and an adopted child. And we ate and we had the devotion and they sang a song. They sing it at their devotions. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. They taught me hand motions. I didn't know there was hand motions to that. But the little two-year-old, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's the vision with one another, old and young, to pass this great and gracious message that God loves, God heals, and God saves. Many of you know that Winston Churchill is one of my favorite historical, military, and political leaders. I read quite a bit about Winston Churchill, but my favorite speech is the Battle of Britain. You know, this is right after Germany had conquered France and moved in to Britain. The end of these words strike me as words for us to reflect on today. He said, let this therefore brace ourselves to our duties and let us bear ourselves to that. If the British Empire lasts for a thousand years, men will say this was our finest hour. Cloud of witnesses at First Presbyterian Church, Augusta, Georgia, only praise endures Pass the faith to the next generation. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled that grace will prevail. In a group this large, there may be someone that their heart is not singing of your wonder. They feel like grace has passed them by. Holy Spirit, would you touch that heart or one who has been living in disgrace? or despair, remind them that you will have this last word and that you will liberate us, that praise, praise will endure. Make us a people of praise. Show us, Father, in humility how to pass the faith to the next generation and how to pass the faith to all peoples, as Jesus said, to go make disciples, not of people of our kind, but of all kinds to make disciples of all nations. Would you give us that vision, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.